Thank you, Austin. Well, it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker for this panel, uh, Professor Nathan Brown, who is a professor of political science at George and, and international affairs at George Washington uh, University, and a non-residency senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, short and succinct, and we've shared panels before, and he's a very wise man. <coughs> Go for it. Thanks. So now I'm supposed to deliver wisdom. Huh? <laughs> well, thanks. I'm not going to deliver exactly wisdom. Thank you very much. The, the panelists, by the way, have, have taken a vote and voted two to zero to sit while delivering the remarks. So. Excellent. Um, yes. Um, the, um, um, this morning, I'm not sure you're going to get wisdom. This morning, we got an awful lot of kind of hard information from the panelists. I'm not sure you're going to get that from me either. I'm a sensitive person, and I think, well, I'm not sure I can understand the new Middle East, but I do care how people feel about it, right? So my research is really going to be about how it feels to be a political Islamist in, 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 the, in the new Middle East. Um, and I thought of three different ways to approach that topic. I uh, consulted with uh, uh, Jim Gelvin before. First, I sent him a paper by mistake that said I could deliver this. He said, oh, that's great. But I'd sent it to him by mistake. It was the wrong one. Then I sent him a second one. And he said, well, this is OK. And then I sent a third one. He said, well, that's really not OK. And so I listened carefully to Jim's advice. And I've decided to give all three papers um, and, um, um, and maybe just talk very, very quickly in order to, to, to do that. Uh, but it's, so what I'm really going to be talking about is, is, is addressing sort of head on um, the uh, title of, of, of the panel, the, the Future of Political Islam, essentially, in, in the Arab world today. I'm going to restrict it basically to the Arab world. And it, so, sort of um, uh, looking at Islam as people who seek to draw on Islamic themes or particular or Islamic understandings, uh, particularly the Islamic Sharia, in order to um, uh, create or reform the political order. Um, and, and so, so, so their, their political activity and the political orientation is informed by their understanding of the Islamic Sharia, but it's also informed to an extent that's often not openly acknowledged by their experiences and by, uh, especially not acknowledged always, but by political judgment. The difference, for instance, or the distinction between jihadists and others rests partly on their different interpretation of texts and doctrines, but it also rests on their different political evaluation of the nature of existing regimes, even though the, the argument doesn't always get carried out that way. So what I really want to do is to um, uh, talk about how recent political experiences affect their, uh, the political judgments of Islamists, how much of Islamist movements been shaped by the events of the past decade. And I think that they have been shaped very, very profoundly. Um, and I want to um, illustrate this in, in four steps. First, what I want to do is talk a little bit about, uh, about a, 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 an approach to politics. This is partly to, uh, um, to try and give Khaled Abul Fadl something to seek his teeth into, um, but really having to do with, with um, what I will argue will be that um, there is uh, those who look to the Islamic legal tradition have an awful lot of richness to draw on in terms of a theory of the duty of the ruler, but are much less well guided in, this, uh, in, 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 in uh, approaching the question of a, of, a, of a bureaucratic and regulatory state. I'm going to, uh, uh, that'll be my first point. My second point will be to take a look at a, what I'll call a mainstream approach, most fully developed by Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood, to this question, which accepted, often generally implicitly, the modern state and sought to steer it in a particular direction. 
Um, third, I'll take a look at, again, looking primarily, uh, but not exclusively, at Egypt, at, uh, at how many advocates of that approach experienced what they felt was this bankruptcy um, as a result of the experience, especially of 2012 to 2013. And fourth, I'll take a look at some places where, in a sense, um, the formula has succeeded uh, extremely well, and some other Islamist movements are grappling with the implications of that. So, so uh, let me begin with what I'm saying is, okay, there, um, uh, and I'm going to put things here very, very boldly, um, there is an Islamic theory of the rule, but not an Islamic theory of the state. And what I mean is, it's sort of how I hit upon this, was I was working once on translating a, a uh, judgment of Egypt's Supreme Constitutional Court. Um, it was something that I was barely qualified to do, but I could draw on uh, uh, friends and colleagues to help me with some of the, 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 the legal and also some of the Islamic uh, uh, terminology. And one phrase that kept on hitting me, is difficult to translate, and I think I finally just decided to use the Arabic, was, was the phrase walil amr. Um, walil amr was used in this case in two senses. One, there was a father who was filing a lawsuit on behalf of his daughter, so he was a legal guardian. So walil amr is legal guardian for a minor. But it also meant people who sort of seem to be exercising political authority. But it sort of seemed to sometimes mean the ruler as an individual, as a person, the president perhaps. Sometimes it seemed to be the minister of education. Sometimes it seemed to be the parliament. Sometimes it seemed to be the court itself as a constitutional authority. And I had an opportunity to ask a judge on the constitutional court, what do you mean by well but Do you mean the state? Do you mean the ruler? Do you mean the minister of education? Do you mean, uh, do you mean the judges? Uh, who, who, who or what is the well amr And he said, yeah, uh -huh, all those six. Um, and um, um, in, in a sense, what you've got is, is sort of a, a, a heritage of political thought that I think um, um, is kind of very, very clear on some questions, but much less clear uh, on an awful lot of questions of structure that arise in the modern period. For instance, you know, the doctrine of, of, of his, but there's no doubt that the political authority has a duty to uh, secure public morality in some way, that the ruler may enjoin good and forbid evil, and that the ruler may delegate some of this. Uh, to some extent. But the real questions, political questions that have arisen in specific, in, in recent years, for instance, in Saudi Arabia, it's um, can the religious police, the body that has been deputized in a very bureaucratic manner to, to fulfill this function, can they perform arrests or do they have to refer them to the regular oh. police for arrest? Where are, where is this, this the religious police, as they're called in English, uh, the, the high, uh, as, as Saudis call it, where is it to be put, inserted into the Saudi straight stru structure? Is it a freestanding body? Does it report to the Ministry of Education, uh, Ministry of, of Interior, to the Ministry of Islamic Affairs, and so forth and so on? Those are questions that really deeply affect what the body actually can do, and they really deeply affect the nature of, 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 of Saudi public life, in the same way as a legal reform essentially in, in, insisting that Egyptian, individual Egyptian citizens who wanted to lodge Hispa suits had to do so by reporting um, a, a matter to the the public prosecutor who would then make a judgment. This is, on one hand, a minor bureaucratic change, minor legal change, over which the Islamic teachings basically are silent, but which has a real big uh, impact on how these things are actually practiced. So my, my, my point here is that um, an awful lot of the I mean, this is perhaps, um, you know, uh, uh, saying, you know, Ali Abdel Razak was right. I mean, there's, there, there is a way in which modern bureaucratic legal questions in a mo in, 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 that Islamists have to deal with are ones that, for which, you know, the Islamic 
uh, heritage, political and legal heritage which they're drawing from can tell you a lot about the ethics of public administration. And they can tell you an awful lot about the duties of the ruler, but they can't tell you much, or they have not yet been developed much to tell you much about the structure of the state. So that leads me to my second uh, point about the uh, mainstream approach that developed. And this was, as I say, associated probably most with the Muslim Brotherhood, and that's where I was, um, um, became most familiar with it, which really became, began to focus, especially after the Brotherhood's reemergence after the 1970s, of reform from within the system. And what this meant, essentially, was that questions about the form of the state should there be a parliament? Should the parliament pass laws? What about what's the role of the bureaucracy? What of independent commissions? What about um, 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 uh, you know the the, the, the the structure and the specific ministries, cabinets, and so forth and so on? And the answer is basically the Brotherhood. We're good with all that. Okay, we just want to make sure that they're doing the right things and that we've got good people in authoritative positions. But on questions of political structure, for the most part, with a couple minor exceptions, uh, the Brotherhood's approach was essentially to try and, th 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 they were very comfortable with the idea of using state power. Uh, the question was just who was going to be using it and how it was going to be used. Uh, so, so any thought of sort of reconstructing um, um, the, the, the bureaucratic regulatory state uh, was one that um, since didn't draw that much attention. Now, to be sure, there were dissident voices, people who were in the Islamist spectrum, not necessarily in the Brotherhood, but who uh, um, very much questioned this acceptance of existing state forms. Uh, but even they tended to position themselves in contradistinction to the, we're the un-Brotherhood because we don't do that. Um, so that's why I call the Brotherhood approach kind of the mainstream approach. Um, um, others define themselves by, by, by their distance from it. And none of those really, um, uh, I could see, had any alternative um, um, uh, state structure to offer, what they would tend to do would be to focus on, on overthrowing um, um, or questioning existing regimes. Okay, so let me now um, uh, turn to the third part. That's kind of the attitudes, I think, um, that mainstream Islamist groups bring to the upheavals of, you know, the begin before 2011, but certainly in the, in the, in the 2011, post-2011 period. Um, and you had a period in which the e Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood actually entered political power and was at the top of the Egyptian state. Um, and what you saw was a very tumultuous period, but one, to my reading, was one in which the Brotherhood basically, the, the way that its leaders would talk would be of a sense of responsibility that they had been called by the society to use state authority to guide Egypt in a, in a way that would benefit its citizens and would increase the role essentially for, for uh, 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 virtue in Egyptian society. Um, obviously, that comes to a crashing end in the uh, summer of 2013. And it's that experience that I think has led to a radical rethinking among some people from the Brotherhood's constituency about the idea of, of, of the um, kind of we're good with the state. Um, in a post-Rabbah environment, and Rabbah, I think, is, is, is an event um, whose implications Egyptians will be feeling in political life for a generation to come. And, but one of the things that it did, Islamists, was, um, ascent, I mean, it, 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 did, it did all sorts of things. But, but um, when I talked to some um, former Brotherhood members, especially ones who were a little bit lower down in the ranks about kind of the post-Rabbah feelings, um, there's an awful lot of anger there. But there's also a sense that they made a fundamental mistake by being good with the state. That the state is not simply all these bureaucracies. The state is essentially a form of domination. 
And the way that state authority was used in Egypt, that, you know, they, they said essentially we thought we could step into the presidency, we could step into the parliament, write the right laws, and this sort of thing, command the, the, the top of the state apparatus. And what we missed was how thoroughly corrupt this state apparatus, how political authority in general in the country is in the hands of people who are unaccountable, who use it for their own benefit, domination of, 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 of one individual or another, a very kind of Kotobist formula. So this kind of Kotobist critique of the state that had been lurking in the Brotherhood is suddenly very, very powerful, and they use it even within, within, within the Brotherhood itself in terms of questioning the hierarchy. After Rabah, nobody in the Guidance Bureau is going to be able to tell me um, um, that I can't be angry about these kinds of events. Now, that's not the only approach in, 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 in the Brotherhood. Ironically, I think those people who identified pre-Brahma as kind of the Kotobis within the organization actually take a very different kind of approach, um, where, in, in a sense, it's, it's about um, uh, preserving the health of the organization and making the organization uh, helping it pass through one of the most difficult periods in its history, essentially safeguarding the Kotobis vanguard. I mean, this is Kotobis uh, 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 vocabulary that they sometimes do not use, but that's kind of um, um, uh, how, how, how it's perceived. Uh, but so you do have this real problem in, in, in the Brotherhood. My sense is that the Brotherhood as an, as an organization is going to come out of this ultimately intact but much, much smaller and dominated by this group that essentially wants to preserve the organization. But their ability to kind of present themselves as the mainstream of political Islam in the country, to, to, to try and recruit somebody to the Muslim Brotherhood today, try and show up at the places where they were doing an awful lot of their recruiting prior to 2013, um, and those spaces are not open to them, and the kind of formula is like kind of join us, and, and maybe in a generation or two we'll be ready to reemerge um, and, and take up where we left off, is not a very, very uh, persuasive appeal. So essentially what you have is a, um, um, is, uh, uh, you know, uh, an environment where that approach, the, sort of the, the old, let's get into the state and reform it, has essentially been replaced by two different uh, kinds of orientations, um, simply because of what all would agree would be a disastrous experience uh, um, in, in, in the summer of 2013. Okay, so that's... Um, um, that's sort of one set of responses who look at what happened in that period and look back and see that it is a, um, it is a disastrous period. And it's an experience that looms very, very large in Islamist circles. But it's not the only experience. And this is something that we often uh, uh, forget. There are places where the idea that you can get into positions of political authority and use state authority in order to better the society is one that is not ridiculous in other kinds of places where Islamists have entered political power. Um, uh, Tunisia, Morocco, Palestine, arguably you could say going back, Kuwait as well, um, and perhaps some other places, um, Islamists got a, a turn at participating in uh, leading parts of the state apparatus. And this idea that what they can deliver is better governance if they get into the ministry of, of, of oil in Kuwait, or petroleum affairs in Kuwait, that the, what they can do is run it in a way that is more efficient, um, um, that they can um, uh, get into parts of the state apparatus, as, as I say, kind of make, use, use, uh, use that authority in a way that benefits um, the entire society. Um, this is one that is actually 
uh, a viable option for some Islamist movements. And of course, it sets off some, so, some soul searching. Is this a kind of, of, of co-optation? Are the Islamist, the current Islamist leaders who are doing this becoming the kinds of leaders that their founders of their movements warned them against, that, that they've essentially been sucked into political power? Um, and movements are kind of debating them each in their own way. Hamas went through this extremely publicly and essentially found itself, I think, trying to disengage from full political authority can't even call it quasi-state authority, quasi-authority authority, authority um, quasi-Palestinian authority, um, and it basically has had a difficult time doing it. Other movements, I think, embrace it a little bit more fully than it seems to feel, feel, feel right. But what I would say is that the, the ethos that still seems to, to, to inform these movements, it, as they, in a sense, focus on, um, on, on um, not on... Uh, making a, um, a better society comprehensively overnight, or not necessarily even Islamicizing it in the sense of enforcing particular strictures of, of the Islamic Sharia, but more in terms of essentially, I would see as acceptance of, of, of the administrative role of the state and trying to make that administration work better. This is when the, 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 the impression I get from Islamist leaders who have taken this path, it sounds to me an awful lot, lo uh, an awful lot like the sense of re responsibility that I would hear from uh, Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood peer, uh, leaders back in the 2011-2012 period. And essentially, we are a movement that is dedicated to certain principles, and this society needs us and has called us into a leadership position in order to uh, uh, serve the society better. Not we're selling out, but we are, in a sense, despite our, um, or, or, or whatever our own personal inclinations, um, uh, being called upon uh, 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 to lead, and it's an it's an, it's an attitude, as I say, that takes the uh, um, modern state in its current form and essentially just says, "How can we make it work a little bit better?" Thank you. Professor Toby Madsen is a senior research fellow in, in the international relations of the Middle East at Saint Anthony's College, Oxford. Uh, author of a number of books, including the Sectarian Gulf. Uh, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, and the Arab Spring that wasn't, and the other Saudis. Um, Professor Madison. Thank you very much. And thank you very much to the organizers for organizing me, uh, for inviting me to this, you know, stellar lineup of American, mainly American political scientists, um, uh, you know, given about, you know, relations between the United States and the Middle East, relations between the United States and Europe. I'm, I'm representing Europe at this, uh, <laughs> this uh, conference. Anyway, um, I'm quite, uh, I mean, I suppose one of the reasons why I was invited, because a subtitle of one of my books actually has, has in it, you know, the Arab Spring that wasn't. Now, in retrospect, that sounds, you know, prophetic, but um, uh, it wasn't really. I mean, the idea of that title was to talk about Bahrain, as in the one case, that you know, a mass uprising was not allowed to succeed and was stifled directly by, by foreign intervention. Of course, a few years later, the title now has, has somehow you know, different ring to it, and most people now think I was prophetic, but I have to admit, obviously I wasn't. I was also a bit swept away by, by the enthusiasm of those, of those years. They coincided with me you know, traveling to a lot of those places and, 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 and experiencing some of these things. Um, firsthand, and therefore I'm 
um, I suppose, as sad as, as many of, of you are, uh, at seeing uh, these, you know, uh, in particular in those in Bahrain, in that <laughs> case, those cross-sectarian, cross-cutting movements, uh, alliances, discourses being replaced by others that are more particular, uh, more group-based, uh, more identity-focused. Um, and so what my paper was trying to do was um, juxtapose a little bit the IR, um, general political science approaches with other approaches that look more at agency and yet other approaches that look more at the level of ideas. Um, but obviously after t today's morning session, I don't really need to rehash the arguments of the first kind of school um, because they have been um, uh, represented by Mark's um, paper in particular, and I'm sure Gregory Gauss will also do quite a lot of that, and I'm obviously indebted to those two scholars for, for this whole idea, which is very important, um, despite the fact that my paper is partly going to, um, trying to problematize uh, that approach, by, by showing the fact that, uh, especially after 2003, with the uh, invasion of, of Iraq, the destruction of the Iraqi state, and then the weakening, you know, after 2011 of of the Syrian state um, uh, and and similar you know patterns in Bahrain, Yemen, and 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 Libya, although you know that's a different context, and, and Egypt led to this kind of proxy war, which was which is being played out in those weaker states. I think basically you know that that is right. But then how does that explain you know that the issues of sectarianism become the kind of uh, uh, dominant? frames of reference in many of those states. And of course, I'm talking about the Mashrek here. Um, I'm sure our keynote speaker will talk about the Maghreb, how, how much more, you know, how better, how much better it is there. And obviously, the, the, the Sunni Shia issue uh, is not a particularly important one there. Although, you know, and that's often said in a footnote, but, but uh, on some levels, you know, the, the polemics have also extended the, uh, to the Maghreb uh, in terms of, you know, threats of, of Shia proselytizing um, uh, and, and so on and so forth. But I'm going to um, leave it at that. But what these, you know, approaches fail sometimes to, to explain are, um, well, first of all, the agency of, of loads of the, of, of the people in those countries. Um, uh, and also, you know, the, the agency that some of these proxies have. So I think we, you know, in the debate in the first session, we really got to that um, problematic already. So does identity matter or not? I mean, I think this is a huge question which is not, it's not easily resolved. And, and I think um, it does actually matter. And, and the case of Sunni-Shia relations in particular shows that there is a certain stickiness to this particular form of identification that is not, you know, just easily explained by a kind of top-down constructivist um, or otherwise instrumentalist approach that um, says it's all just the function of manipulating um, elites and, and foreign powers. Um, although my, my, I myself have, have partly written in that um, tradition. But um, if you look um, at uh, a kind of, you know, and I'm happy that um, Brodel was mentioned here by, by our first uh, commentator. I mean, if you take a bit of a more long durée approach, and um, you know, you said looking at the 2000s is already long durée. I mean, I'm not sure that was the, the original intention of, 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 of his approach, but, but um, sometimes it can feel that way in, in the kind of Arab 
studies, Arab uprisings, Arab Spring, and I'm going to use the word uh, a discourse or literature, because we're so fixated on 2011 as this cutoff point, and, and of course a lot of things change. But I mean, first of all, in a each country, um, and I think that's been you know shown for Egypt by by uh, Joel Bainan, um, you know, so much happened in terms of you know contentious politics in the decades prior, and in each of the other countries, and that's also the case. Um, um, in 2010, you know, uh, is actually when it really started, um, uh, but but you know. So, for example, in the case of Bahrain, um, there's been contentious politics for decades. In the 1990s, in fact, witnessed a huge uprising, and we're, we're, we're in some ways seeing a repetition of that. And this whole you know, notion of the cutoff date of 2011 probably doesn't make much sense to people that are working in those national uh, uh, frameworks. But you know, that's, that's, that's quite a moderate long durée. I mean, what I'm partly trying to do at the moment in my larger work is, is to take a bit of a longer uh, long durée approach, and, and not to say that you know these identities um, are somehow fixed uh, underlying categories that have driven Middle East history, but to take them seriously in earlier periods that are some of them very different to what we're witnessing today, and some of them quite similar. Um, and I'm going to try to do that in the in the latter part um, of the paper, but. If we take this kind of you know regional proxy war um, uh, approach and, and 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 you know the IR international history I suppose seriously, then we do need to say that kind of one of the uh, roots of the kind of Sunni Shia polarization, um, I mean, is certainly 1979. Um, uh, but um, we can go back further. But what we've seen between 1979 and I would say 9/11 um, is a kind of concerted anti-Iranian and and by default. Uh, spread of anti-Iranian propaganda and by, partly by default anti-Shia narratives around the Muslim world um, uh, by led, this effort was led by the Gulf states, in particular by Saudi Arabia, but it was done in concert to a certain extent with the United States, I mean given that you know, alliance um, uh, uh, between Saudi Arabia and the United States. So what I would call a, a kind of anti-Shia Cold War um, uh, that, that really kind of, you know, you can, and you can trace back the spreading of, of the polemics that this, you know, with, between the two sects um, across the region and into territories where that previously was not, uh, I mean, where the differences were previously almost not known. And, and this includes uh, the Maghreb, but includes also uh, Southeast Asia um, uh, uh, and, and places such as Malaysia and Indonesia suddenly became, you know, this discourse became prevalent there. And I think this, um, you know, so if we go back uh, uh, to the kind of international history approach, I think we need to go back um, to this period. And 1979 is an important um, cutoff date uh, in that regard. Um, there are obviously exceptions to this whole narrative. Um, um, I mean, there were obviously at times better relationships between the U.S. and Iran, uh, between the Saudis and Iran. Um, the funding of uh, the kind of Skiri, the pro-Iranian Iraqi opposition group, receiving um, uh, uh, American funding and so on and so forth. That's kind of a, a bizarre kind of you know um, uh, um, side note of that whole story. And it changes after 2003 because of the Iraq. The Iraq story. The Iraq story doesn't fit into that um, pattern at all, and um, you know maybe we can talk about that in, in, in the Q and A a bit. Um, and that is really where a lot of the kind of old Sunni autocrats in the region start to think that actually the United States is no longer with us; it's doing the exact opposite. But um, and and the kind of you know the, the logics of empire and manipulation of 
allies or proxies probably plays some uh, role here, but um, uh, you know, we can't, I can't resolve this puzzle on all on my own. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a much bigger question. But the manipulation, therefore, of and, and, and inflaming of sectarian relations is not detached from external intervention and, and never has been. Um, uh, and if we go back further in history, it's obviously, you know, the mandate period was previously mentioned. That was obviously a very important uh, uh, period for the, the institutionalization of sectarian um, identities. Um, you don't have to be a classical historian to, to realize that. And, and given that we're, you know, sitting on a panel with a step, you know, esteemed lawyer, um, uh, um, you know, the codification of uh, uh, Islamic law and of um, particular uh, sectarian law for particular communities and the institutionalization of, of courts for, for some of these communities, um, I mean, has been a demand for a long time and then there's the Ottoman legacy and so on and so forth, but the mandate period is really um, where that happens. And um, I think jurisprudence um, as the, the space, you know, I mean, one of the issues of Sunni-Shia kind of relations long term is that the, the people who have engaged in debates and polemics were usually clerics. Um, um, nowadays there's a bit of a change in that, but so they were clerics trained in the legal tradition, so the, the, the law aspect um, is, is crucial. And, and while, so, so, so sometimes they would write about political um, uh, affairs, but often about particular doctrinal matters. And um, the, the different schools would kind of you know, come into existence partly uh, in relation to each other, so as a discursive field between each other. So they often, you know, wrote uh, big um, uh, compendiums looking at particular issues of, of that divided um, uh, 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 um, the different madhahibs and, and now particularly the Sunni and, and the, the, the Shi uh, uh, madhabs. So law and then its codification and its institutionalization, I think, is, a, is an important um, uh, um, way of, of getting into that. And uh, until today, in, in kind of minority situations, um, Shia-led um, uh, um, um, political movements, Shia identity movements, have always emphasized law as, as you know, a personal status law courts as one of their key demands. And, 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 and that's, for example, the case in Saudi Arabia, um, in Bahrain. Um, but was, was also law is also always a contentious issue in, and, and, a, and a place where difference was enacted uh, and recognized in Iraq, um, in Syria, obviously, um, and in um, Lebanon. And um, I suppose I've got quite a lot of other points that I want to make, but, but so let's leave this kind of, you know, the, the kind of political aspect um, uh, a little bit behind. On the level of, 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 of polemics, um, which have, um, as I said, since 1979 in particular, spread around the globe, there's been a yet another acceleration of the spreading of these polemics um, by the emergence of the, the satellite TV channels, the internet, social media, and so on and so forth. And I think we therefore see a kind of profound shift in that because as I said previously, these debates were largely um, you know, confined to, to jurists and um, you know, there was a particular polemical literature, um, but there wasn't, it wasn't really spread you know, down to, 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 you know, you know, to the street level, I suppose. And whereas nowadays, you know, you can actually, you know, look on, on YouTube, particular, you know, you, you watch a video, a particular inflammatory video about a particular aspect of the religious rituals of the other sect, and then you, you know, you talk about it at home or, or wherever, and you can actually watch, you know, uh, ceremonies being, uh, you know, by, by, by whatever the other group. And so I think there's a, there is a shift there and a kind of 
you know, um, globalization and, and, and broadening of, of, of places of debate. And, and I think that has not really helped because um, on the level of the polemics, there's been no change. I mean, I, as far as I could, you know, detect, there, there's been, it's, they're the more or less the same polemics um, uh, as were there a thousand years ago. Uh, in terms of you know what the Shia do and, and what the Sunnis do and what you know the periods about early Islam that the the big debates are um, about and and even their connection with you know particular rivalries and and so the connection but for example between Iran and Shiism and the idea that Shiism is somehow a Persian thing and 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 Sunni Islam is an Arab thing that's not an idea I mean it's obviously not true at all um, but it's not an idea that is particularly new. Um, uh, it, it was prevalent at, in some form or another um, in earlier polemics, in particular in the 20th century um, in, in, in Arab nationalism. It was somehow implicit, um, the whole idea um, uh, that in Iraq in particular, where that kind of galvanized the idea that, um, uh, yeah, well, she is, you know, the, the Shia clerics, they're all Persians, um, and, and so on and so forth, and then the appropriation of that by Saddam Hussein um, uh, and, and others. I mean, so in terms of the debates, it's, it's nothing new. It's just that they're being spread around much more widely. Um, and in terms of the, the doctrinal debates, I mean, there are precedents and, and that links to the kind of IR side of things to a certain extent uh, in the Ottoman-Safavid rivalry. And um, you know, it's, an, it's, a, it's a conference on the Arab uprising, so I don't want to you know, make too broad analogies to that period. But in terms of, you know, this was, these were two centuries where two empires um, of the Middle East basically defined themselves as some form of, uh, of Sunni Islam as a dominant um, uh, religion of state and, and uh, a kind of Usuli interpretation of Shiism as a, the, the, the ideology of state. The borders lands in Iraq, for example, where the, the areas where the, you know, these, these two forces met. And um, uh, in the wars they fought each other, religious discourse was often used, as was today, um, very explicitly um, uh, uh, in legitimizing wars of conquest and treatment of, of, uh, of captured slaves and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so you had fatwas issued by, by the religious authorities of both states legitimizing these wars. And then in the peace treaties between the two countries, um, particular you know, doctrinal matters were actually um, uh, written down and agreed upon. And so the, the Safavids um, uh, several times uh, agreed to ban certain Shi practices in order not to arouse <coughs> the, the feelings of, of the, the Ottomans. So I mean, in, in, in some ways, one can actually find some similarities back then, of course, given the totally different nature of the historical context, the nature of the state, and so on and so forth. But in terms of the utilization of particularly Sunni and Shi identities uh, for foreign policy and domestic legitimization, that would be um, the more kind of the better analogy. So where do we kind of you know, bring this all together? I mean, it's, uh, it, 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 it's quite difficult, but I think a, a kind of purely IR um, political science approach is not, does not do, do justice to the kind of what I would call the stickiness of, of some of these identities and something more in between uh, 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 might, be, might be needed. I've at times written or used the term um, uh, identity entrepreneur as, as, as people who sit somewhere in the middle between this you know, very, very top-down and, and a kind of bottom-up approach. So people who profit from sectarian identities play with them, perhaps amplify them. Um, uh, um, I think this could be you know, one way um, uh, of moving forward. Um, perhaps 
one last point before I conclude. Um, you know, if you look at Sunni-Shia relations and particularly also this Ottoman-Safavid uh, rivalry, it actually ended this particular in, in, in the in the rule of Nadir Shah, who wanted to reconvert Iran to to Sunnism, and in fact um, wanted uh, 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 Shiism to be recognized as the fifth Mathab. So it's famously seen as the start of an effort of of bringing the different schools together. So Takrib, and in the mid 20th century, that was then famously taken up again by the Azhar and by uh, scholars in Qom and Najaf to kind of bring to, to, to tone down these polemics or resolve them and in fact, you know, unite um, the different schools of Islam. This was particularly at a time of, of colonial, anti-colonial feelings in Iraq and Egypt. It was, you know, Nasser was the protege to a certain extent of that. He wanted to be, he wanted these divisions amongst the Arabs to be set aside um, uh, and um, uh, there was a partly a kind of you know common feeling that communism is a threat amongst the clerics in the Azhar and, and Najaf. Uh, uh, funnily enough, so that it was a very different uh, context. But the, you know this this is a prolonged effort um, at Sunni Shia reconciliation led by these clerics, and and there was a jur journals were published, uh, books were published, and by the end of that period, about 10, 10 years, they kind of agreed that well, actually the you know differences in terms of jurisprudence and 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 kind of so on are, are so minor that we can recognize more or less Shiism as a fifth method and resolve at least the doctrinal um, aspect of this whole issue. Um, now. This has failed then for, for many different reasons, um, one of which was probably the, the, the Islamic revival or, or the, the rise of Salafism um, on the Sunni side and the, the Iranian revolution on the, on the Iranian side. Um, implicit in Salafism is a return to the early period, to the period of the Salaf Salih, uh, the Rashidun caliphs, um, uh, and, and so on. And, and in, implicit in that uh, is obviously a kind of going back to the most contentious aspects of Sunni-Shi relations where even the most uh, open-minded scholars will probably not find a way of, of, of agreeing. Um, uh, uh, and, um, and I suppose the international history aspect of this all um, then after 1979 uh, again comes in where the kind of states and international powers want to kind of prevent such a kind of convergence and the Iranian revolution itself um, uh, after being initially quite um, embraced by Sunni Islamic movements then, you know, for various reasons, partly it's foreign policy, partly it's domestic politics, becomes less appealing to, to Sunni um, uh, Islamic movements. So um, to conclude, um, I think all of these approaches, lenses and frames of analysis have highlighted certain aspects of the broader issue that um, I've been trying to talk about. And um, they shed light on particular factors. Uh, IR and political science, however, um, usually disregards earlier periods of Sunni-Shia conflict or cooperation or, debouts, or debates about early Islam as purely instrumental to grander political schemes. I mean, you know, I'm obviously being a bit polemic here, but basically, you know, the content of the narratives doesn't really matter. It could be anything. Um, religious studies um, and, and classical Islamic studies, you know, Orientalism, um, uh, uh, tends to get bogged down with the minutiae of the early schism or polemics of later periods. Um, although the relationship, for example, between political rule and religious debate is, is, is most often acknowledged. So, you know, uh, and the scholars 
uh, in accounts of, of the Safavid, you know, Ottoman rivalry is in fact you know, quite, quite clear. No one argues that it's a religious conflict. Everybody argues that rulers have instrumentalized um, religious identities um, uh, in, this, in this context. Uh, anthropological approaches, I think, might be the best suited to study the interplay between the different levels, but are very hard to carry out, in particular those countries which are most affected, and quite rare, actually, in the context of Sunni-Shia polarization um, or sectarian identification. How individuals inter internalize these narratives and political rivalries remains, therefore, to be studied satisfactorily although much suggests that this is similar to identity formation and transformation in other contexts. So I do not, I do not think that sectarian identity is somehow very different from ethno-religious identity or, or other forms of, of, of group formation. In other words, um, paying attention to the connections between the local, the national, the regional, and the global, being wary of the instrumentalist use of identities and religious feelings by identity entrepreneurs, as well as the content of sectarian identities and narratives, goes a long way in explaining the resurgence of particularized identity politics post-2011 and the emergence of the Sunni-Shia divide as a key fault line in particular. Thank you. I'm just uh, not eager to hear myself speak, so I'm gonna try to generate discussion and, and give you the opportunity to engage our speakers. Um, maybe a... a a common theme that emerges out of this panel is um, the role that uh, doctrine, uh, particularly Islamic theological slash legal doctrine, uh, plays um, as opposed to a, uh, interpretations that uh, do not focus on normative um, uh, impulses from within the tradition itself. I do wonder in, in, uh, whether we are talking about sectarianism or we are talking about uh, the relationship of the Muslim Brotherhood to uh, Sharia doctrines, to uh, arguments about Hizbah or Wali al-Amr so forth. I do wonder in a region that is thoroughly penetrated from an international relations perspective and that uh, since colonialism has had a very strong tradition not of a, of a some type of nuanced or uh, matured philosophy of authoritarianism, but rather brute authoritarianism, um, whether that authoritarianism applied by a, a military regime or uh, an elite that is often in close alliance with a military regime and a religious clergy. Uh, what type of space that generates for any systematic convictional normative movements, whether we're talking about the Sunni-Shia divide or we're talking about the relationship of Islam, Islamist movements to Sharia. I mean, after all, Jama'at Islamiyah has a, Jama'at Islamiyah in Egypt have a, a more 
involved relationship with Sharia and Sharia interpretations than the Ikhwan do. Um, but yet, their, their political fate has been quite different than the Ikhwan. Um, I remember in, in, uh, after the revolution, during the period of the military council, and uh, during the period of Morsi, uh, uh, Toby mentioned the uh, satellite television stations. And there in Egypt, there were uh, several television stations that regularly uh, attacked Ibn Taymiyyah. And uh, Ibn Taymiyyah's discourse on Tasjid or um, uh, 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 attributing uh, uh, physical attributes to God. Uh, but it was quite clear that these TV stations were Shia. Uh, to, in response to these television stations, there were several that in turn attacked uh, several Shia figures like Pusi and, um, um, uh, and so on. And there were two, I, I remember the military officers and uh, people from Amnid Dola were quite scandalized by these television stations and they thought they threatened the very fabric of Islamic society. This is obscene and uh, how can we have people talking about the Sunni-Shiite divide so blatantly and openly. On the other hand, there were uh, people who were thought that this is the beginning of political maturity, that you're not actually going to achieve doctrinal sophistication unless people talk about things. So in, in the way I would put it in, is this. In light of what perhaps can be described as the politics of brutalization, a, a, a systematic brutalizing political uh, context, um, which often leads to zero-sum situations, how coherent is it to talk about um, law or sh Sharia interpretations in the context of uh, political institutions? Um, I mean, a law, often in order for legal interpretation, legal discourses to uh, make sense, the, a, a, a system of stability is needed. Otherwise, uh, law just simply becomes a space for desperate identity politics. So uh, that is a, a question that I, uh, uh, I've often wondered about. Um, uh, the, the level of of political brutalization in the region, does it really leave a space? And after this also the level of political penetration by external factors. Um, uh, can, uh, and the way everyone seems to have their hand in the pot and in, in, in the stew that emerges from that region. Um, Okay, for, for whatever, whatever it's worth, that's what I would love to hear more about. But of course, you guys take, have priority and completely preempt me. Um, so we'll move on to questions.